Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Matt McCannell, and he'll be answering your questions on the tailwaters of the Uncompahgre River. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and uh, we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple, Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and share this broadcast. The contents of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Matt McCannell about tailwaters of the Uncompahgre River. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors, a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. That's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Matt, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Matt's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. And you can find out more about Stackpole by going to stackpolebooks.com. Uh, they've got a host of uh, uh, different publications out there, uh, uh, so many books on fly fishing. It's incredible. So here's how you can win uh, one of Stackpole's book. You've got to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Matt and I talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills and, uh, and take good notes, and maybe you'll win uh, a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Matt McCannell. Matt is head fishing guide for Riggs Fly Shop and has been leading newcomers and experienced anglers alike on successful trips for more than a decade. Since 2005, he's been guiding for Riggs full-time, passionately making his clients better anglers. Matt takes a unique out-of-the-box approach to fly fishing and instruction with an emphasis on technical tailwater trout. Intimately familiar with the waters of western Colorado, Matt guides on the gold medal waters of the Gunnison Gorge and the Uncompahgre River tailwater, uh, also known as Paco, 
where he's helped clients successfully catch browns up to 20 pounds. He's known for carrying a ladder with him on his sight fishing trips and giving his clients a huge advantage when it comes to spotting trophy tailwater fish. Above all, his focus is on giving his clients the most enjoyable experience and getting his clients into the biggest fish, period. His unique ability to teach and explain and even the most intricate details is the key to the success of his clients and has made him one of the most sought-after guides in the nation. Matt is an ambassador pro team member for several of the industry's best companies like Sage, Sims, Fishpond, Costa, uh, and Scientific Anglers. His mantra, go slow and be patient. Matt, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to have, uh, have you. Uh, uh, again, we were just talking. We're both in Colorado. It's a beautiful day in Colorado, but uh, if you want to go fishing, you got to go fishing alone. <laughs> So uh, uh, <laughs> yes, just, you do. You do, yeah. The guide business, uh, and as you were explaining that, the the lodging business is dead in the water too. So even even if you could guide, you can't stay in any hotels or anything. You were telling me so. Yeah, um, everything you know, really in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, unfortunate for people in my industry. Uh, we're taking it hard, uh, but. Uh, Hey, we are, we're all going to get through it, uh, hopefully, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, a little bit crazy right now. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, good. Well, we can still talk fishing, and uh, we can still learn about fishing, you know, so uh, let's do some of that tonight. We've got some great questions on, uh, on your neck of the woods down there in uh, southwestern Colorado. Um, and uh, it's um, maybe not one of the, the better-known uh, rivers in Colorado, being that it is kind of far away from Denver. So you can't fly into Denver and go fishing in the afternoon like you can on the South Platte. <laughs> so it's, exactly. uh, uh, but, you know, we've got people listening from all over the, the world, and uh, so why don't you kind of orient us. Tell us where the Compagre River is how, and how you get there, if, if you did want to come fish there. And I'm sure they will after tonight. So. You bet. So, um, like you said, Roger, it's uh, we're a ways away from Denver, about five and a half hours uh, southwest of Denver. Uh, the really big hub in this region would be kind of Montrose to kind of orientate everyone, which is about 30 minutes to the north of the actual fishery. Uh, then you've got Ridgeway, where I live, where the fly shop is that I work for, Riggs. Uh, it's pretty easy. You can fly into Montrose. You can, uh, again, five and a half hours isn't that bad, uh, especially if you're coming from Montrose. Uh, you know, you're about seven hours away from Salt Lake. Uh, but that's really what is nice about it. It's not overly crowded. It never is. Uh, so you're not shoulder to shoulder with people hardly ever, uh, especially throughout the fall, winter, and spring. Uh, that's a, a certainty. There's just not a lot of people, which makes it really nice and what really enhances the, the fish in the fishery. They're not super pressured, uh, even though they may not be the easiest to catch. Uh, it's, you, you don't have to deal with the crowds. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about the, uh, the history of the river? Because this wasn't an always, obviously it's a tailwater, so it wasn't always a, a trophy you know, trout stream like it is today, right? Right. Uh, so 
This is uh, one of the youngest reservoirs or tailwaters. Uh, Ridgeway Reservoir actually is what is the lake behind the dam. Uh, it was started in the mid 80s. There's actually a town at the bottom of the lake, uh, the, town of the, the old town of Divide, Colorado, which is now under the water. Um, but the reservoir is only about 20, uh, let's see, 25 years old, uh, which one thing that we've noticed always is the bug life is always changing. It's always evolving because it is such young fishery it's it's amazing how it's changed in the last 15 years that I've been fishing it. Uh, as far as the aquatic insects go, it's it's really wild. And then about six years ago, we actually got hydro. The dam never produced uh, hydroelectric power. Uh, about five, six years ago, it was retrofitted for hydro, and it really changed the way that it the fish are, the bug life, the oxygen in the water, the big weed beds we have now. So it's 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 always seems like it's evolving, but it's evolving mm -hmm. for the better. Now it goes by another name, doesn't it? Uh, Indian name, Native American so, name. So Paco, yeah, Paco Chupac. Um, there's a few. Uh, is so Paco Chupac is the actual. So this tailwater lies within Ridgeway State Park system. Um, the, there's three different locations of the state park. The one where the tailwater is is called Paco Chupac. It's a Ute Indian name. It means red water or dirty water. Um, we just call it Paco. It's much easier to say, much easier. Everybody gets it. So that's the, the secondary name for, yeah, what it is. But again, still, it's the Uncompagre River. Uh, fed from the beautiful San Juan Mountains up above uh, the town of Uray. It's a uh, gorgeous area. There's, uh, we, we got a question in on the internet here, and it says, um, this is from Jeff Jesse in Denver. Uh, it says, the Paco stretch below the dam gets most of the attention, but how is the fishing and access lower down on the river, such as near Montrose? So why don't you kind of give us a tour from the, the dam on down and how the fishing is and, uh, you know, how it changes. You bet. So, Jesse, the uh, the deal is, uh, so you got the mile and a half stretch at Paco, which is public. From there, about four miles down the river, you have a stretch of public water known as Billy Creek. It's a state wildlife area. Short stretch, I think it's only about just a little under three quarters of a mile in length. But, uh, Fish is great, especially during the winter. And then you've got uh, the town of Montrose, that whole stretch through town. Fish is great. Uh, you're not going to find you know, big fish like you do at uh, the tailwater section. However, these fish are really eager, really happy to eat. Uh, the, the enhancements that the town of Montrose has done through that section and their ability to open it up to the public has been phenomenal. So big hairs ears. Um, Dozen tails. It's not super techy. You can go down. You can catch a pile of fish and some surprisingly nice, nice fish. I was down a few weeks ago and uh, watched a good buddy of mine land a 19-inch uh, rainbow. So there are nicer fish down there, which is surprising to a lot of people, but also a lot of quality fish. So it's a great stretch. Um, yeah, it is. 
Did I read recently that was it Ross Reels or their parent company or something did uh, donated some river front there or something yes. in town? So yeah. the the Maple Eye Corporation who owns Ross, Able, and now Airflow Lines, yes, um, located in Montrose, where their headquarters a few years ago over to here. And yeah, they purchased a huge chunk of property um, that would be to the north of uh, Montrose, still right within town. But uh, it's a great stretch. They've got a ton of great river improvements that they're going to be uh, working on here in the upcoming future. And yeah, they've opened it to the public. It's nice. I mean, tip of the hat to them. That's it's very impressive. Cool, cool. Now, um, is the river floatable or is it uh, weight only uh, fishing? So the problem that has always been with the the unk, as we call it, is public access, because most of it is yes private, uh, from the tailwater down to the town of Montrose is pretty much all private. So the hard part for boaters is you can't really float it because there is no technical put in or take out unless maybe you know a landowner or something. So uh, that's been the hard part. So it's pretty much a wade fishery. Um, you can float it through the town of Montrose. There's a whitewater park, uh, big features in there. It is floatable, but yet when you can float it, the river's moving at a pretty, really good clip, and so it's going to be busy if you try to float it, and it's going to be pretty short stretch of only about a two miles. So it's really better off wade fishing. Okay, okay, good. And what kind of species are available to us as anglers? You know, um, let's see. So cutthroats, you've got rainbows and browns, and also, of course, Got a fairly good population of suckers once you get uh, down around the town of Montrose or that water station. <laughs> which I always, I always uh, hey, if you're having a slow day, you can always find a nice deep hole with those guys in them uh, to keep you occupied. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Do some euro every dredging through there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then every once in a while, especially through the Billy Creek section, uh, there's a couple of feet of coming down from the high country. And you, kind of, you kind of fell out up, there. Matt, you kind of uh, lost you there for a second. Can you say that again? Through the Billy... You got me back? Yeah. So the Billy Creek section, there's a couple of little small feeder creeks that come in, that drop in from the high country into the Uncompagre from there. And every now and again, you will pick up the occasional brook trap. Every now and again. It's pretty seldom. It's only happened to me a few times. But it, uh, it happens. But primarily, uh, cutthroats, Browns and rainbows. And are these wild fish, stocked, mixture? So I'm sure, I don't know of a lot of ranches and whatnot on the private property that stock fish. Um, you'll catch a lot of uh, cut bows through that stretch. Um, you'll obviously a lot of browns. Um, so the tailwater section, Paco, used to be heavily stocked for years. Uh, with smaller, you know, like 8 to 10-inch rainbows, and also Snake River cuts. Um, but more recently, the, they have cut, stopped the stocking, which I've been a huge proponent of for a long time. 
uh, due to the fact that the river, there's so many wild fish now that there's no, in my opinion, no need to stock it. But so hopefully that continues. There's still occasionally you'll catch some stocked fish from, you know, years past, but typically all the browns are wild as well as gorgeous colored up rainbows that uh, we're, we've been really seeing and really been getting to really good sizes here in the last few years are all wild fish, which is really awesome to see. What are the average sizes of, of each of the species that, and, and what's a trophy for each one? You know, that's a, that's a tough question. Of course, you know, I always tell people, you know, uh, a big fish is a relative term to where you're fishing. Uh, for me at Paco, if I'm fishing a tailwater stretch, a big brown is going to be, you know, and this is going to sound a little weird, uh, anything over 12 pounds. That's going to be, you know, a trophy size fish, in my opinion. Uh, rainbows, about the same thing. Um, some of the holdover, uh, like cutthroats that are in there, the snake rivers, you know, you catch them, you know, occasionally up to, you know, 18, 19 inches. Um, and then down through town, though, once you start getting lower, you know, the average fish might be 12 to 14 inches. Of course, you're going to catch those bigger fish occasionally, but uh, that's going to be a pretty average for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's what kind of what the next question, Tim Kay in Oregon, he's, uh, he says, how do you categorize trout by size? For instance, a 16-inch trout, is a 16-inch trout a large one, or does the size range uh, change when you're fishing different waters? There are places where the fish do not reach great size. Do you consider uh, an above-average trout large because of where it lives? Completely. If I am fortunate enough to be able to go fish the high country, say up in the Cimarron rivers, um, either the east, middle, or west fork, if I catch a wild cutthroat up there that goes 12 inches, that's going to be a huge fish. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's going to be a true trophy for that region. So every watershed, every maybe even section of a certain river is going to be different. Obviously, you know, some of the fish that uh, clients pull out of Paco, I'm a little warped on big fish, so that's why I always, for years, have always asked, hey, well, you know, well, where do you usually fish, you know? I'm like, well, if we're fishing on the Gunnison River, a true 20-inch, you know, rainbow is is going to be a true trophy down there. Uh, it's going to be a great fish. Yeah, you're going to catch them, but uh, they're going to come few and far between. Then again, at Paco, you know, a big fish, in my opinion, is going to be around 15 pounds. So it's a, it's a lot different than, uh, you know, it just depends on the resource and where you're fishing. Yeah, now, do you, con- I mean, is Paco the tailwater there? And when you say Paco, you're, you're pretty much talking about the tailwater section, right? we use that term? Yep, I am, okay. yep. So I'm, I'm correct on that. Um, are we, I mean, is that a, a big fish fishery? I mean, is that why people come to fish with you, is to get a big fish? It's, you know, um, people that uh, book trips through the shop or, you know, they always ask, what are you looking for? Are you looking to catch a fish, you know, or are you looking to, to actually hunt fish and go after, you know? have the patience and what not to go after something that's truly big. Most people that I take out 
on the, the stretch known as POC or the tailwater stretch, yeah, are wanting to pursue those truly, you know, a fish of a lifetime for sure, um, which brings a whole new set of challenges. But, um, but yeah, so most people that I fish with are wanting to pursue those larger fish. Okay, okay. Matt Fugazi in uh, Colorado, he asked, uh, why do the browns get so large in the Paco section? So browns or I'll, let me just say fish in general, uh, whether it's browns or rainbows, um, for those of you that have seen it, have been there, uh, you know, that stretch is, it's not a huge river. Um, it blows most people's minds that uh, maybe the first time they lay eyes on the river that there's 20-pound fish here. However, the habitat um, back, uh, let's see, that would have been about 20 years ago now, did a ton of river improvements. Uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife and our local TU chapter, uh, we raised money and got it done to do to redo the whole thing because that stretch used to just be a straight line, not a lot of structure. So we went in, totally redesigned it, big rear, weirs, uh, logs placed in the river. So the structure and habitat is absolutely unbelievable. And if a fish gets bumped, it can go hide. And then, yes, the the food sources are amazing for these big fish. You know, they I have pictures of dead 37-inch fish, browns, that have literally choked to death on 18-inch fish. So clearly they, they have plenty of food, and when you're eating something like that, you don't need to eat a lot, but you can go sleep it off them for the next month. And yeah. uh, that's habitat and food is really what it boils down to. It doesn't matter if it's the flows are at 800 CFS or at 40 CFS, they can still get away, they can still hide, they're still safe. That's what I truly believe is what's going on. Okay, okay. Uh, Matt, we need to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, the Paco tailwater. So uh, hang tight, we'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Matt McCannell about tailwaters of the Uncompagre River. If you would like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Hey, Matt, uh, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, so um, tell us a little bit about, uh, tell us about rigs and your guiding service and what, what you got going on over there. So, obviously, we're going through some tough times right now. Obviously, everyone out there is. Uh, being uh, with the whole social distancing thing and whatnot. 
But uh, Riggs, uh, the fly shop that I guide for, is located in Ridgeway, Colorado. Uh, website for them is fishrigs.com. Um, they do tons of trips, Gunnison Gorge, high country stuff, you name it. It's I love those guys. Like I said, I've been working for them for the last 15 years. It's uh, outstanding. And then if you want to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me through my website, uh, mattmccannellflyfishing.com. Shoot me a message if you got questions. All trips do go through rigs, but uh, we can at least touch base and really uh, go over, you know, times a year. Say you want to do pursue big fish, and you know, I can really just answer a lot of your uh, questions more in depth. So feel free, shoot me a message. But uh, I can say lately, without having any trips, I've uh, I haven't gotten uh, this much time to fish in years. So it's yeah. kind of been nice on that end. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I uh I can't complain. I've uh yeah, I'm getting caught up on fishing. It's yeah. been long overdue. So Yeah, we um always... the um we don't know what's gonna happen here in the next six months, but um I know you were doing speaking engagements and demonstrations at the fly fishing show last year, um, here in Denver and hopefully I'll get to do that again next year if all goes well. But um but I suppose a lot of the club speaking things are off the table now, and uh, the clubs just aren't meeting. In fact, I'm doing a uh, hosting a virtual club on uh, meeting on Zoom for a club out of San Diego next week, just so that they can have a virtual meeting and uh, still do something. So people are getting creative. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm, I so, mean, the last deal I did was uh, let's see over at Anglers. Covey, I think the beginning of uh, oh, what was that? April eighth mm. or no? That's today. Uh, no, last month. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, <laughs> I had that, March eighth. Yeah, I had today's date, March eighth, I believe. But yeah, that was a month ago. And yeah, everything else uh, since then, unfortunately, has been uh, postponed and shut down. Yeah. But um, yeah. we're making the best of it. It's a bummer not to see people. Uh, and get out and enjoy, you know, these great events. But you know, yeah. we got to get through it, and it's we'll get through well, it. So yeah, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, crossed for the next, uh, you know, season next January for the shows, and and then people can hopefully see you there and uh, touch base. Um, so um, yeah, good. Well, um, let's talk more and uh, get our juices flowing about the pocket here. <laughs> uh, you got it. Uh, we can always dream, you know, and fish in our sleeps, you know. Sleep. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw some woman practicing her double haul without a rod the other day on on uh, on Facebook, you know, just just to feel the movement, you know. So, uh, exactly. So anyway, people are doing anything and everything to try to participate. But so um, when we're talking about time of year, what's the best time of year to fish the pocket? Oh, let's see. In my opinion, um, and this is strictly from, and the only reason why I'm saying this is because when I'm fishing Paco with clients or by myself, I'm strictly sight fishing. Uh, very rarely, very seldom do we ever not see a fish then cast to it. We're never really blind fishing. Uh, it's okay. just the way I do things. Um, so with that being said, fall say, uh, let's see, uh, September uh, through 
about the beginning of May, in my opinion, is the, the best time to be there to be able to sight fish. That being said, uh, the largest fish I've ever had someone land was caught in the, during peak runoff. Um, so even though we could still see that fish, which was uh, not all that surprising, but deeper water, faster water, they have a lot more places to hide. And that's, yeah. that's really the only reason why I say, you know, the, the colder months are typically the best. Uh, fish are typically spookier because of lower flows and whatnot. However, you, you have a lot more opportunities at very large fish because September, we can find them. So September to May, uh, the cooler months, yeah, okay. Yep, uh, and, September and what about, to May. What about the, uh, the river flows? Uh, how do those affect fishing, and you know, do they? If so, how? I don't know how how much fluctuation you get out of that dam. A lot of fluctuation in flows. Right now, the flow is, which is going to sound really scary to maybe some people, is at 43 cfs, which is low. Um, 43. They, oh my goodness. 43. Yeah. They can uh, legally take it down to 30 cfs. Uh, thank goodness they haven't done that in uh, in a while. Typically, we'd really like to see it around 70, but uh, it's a bit out of our hands, uh, unfortunately. But so right now it's at 43. I've seen it as high as 1,200 CFS. Uh, typically, a, a even during peak runoff, it doesn't get much higher than about 900 on average, uh, which sounds a lot considerable amount bigger than 43 CFS, but it's still very fishable. Uh, you got to switch up your tactics, obviously, a little bit. You know, obviously, if you're nymphing, going with a little bit more weight, but still very fishable. And uh, then, you know, the dry fly fishing is a lot better with that higher water as well. But uh, So there is a big fluctuation, and you just got to tailor your tactics. I know even a lot of locals, you know, you get used to fishing at all winter at 40 to 50 CFS, and then all of a sudden now it's 500 CFS. Well, you can't use the same stuff. You just got to switch things up and adjust according. So it's easy to figure out, but yeah, just don't get stuck in a rut and doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, we got a question from Craig in Portland, Oregon, uh, about the, well, kind of about the, the flows. Uh, he says the river looks like it might be used for irrigating surrounding agricultural land, does this affect river levels in the fall or any other time? So if we're talking about the, the tailwater section of Paco, no. And to answer your question, yes. I mean, pretty much every river out here in the West is obviously used for irrigation on some level, uh, especially the Unk. Um, the Unkampagre actually dumps into the Gunnison River uh, in the town of Delta. So. Uh, it, a lot of irrigation, a lot of agriculture throughout the valley uh, that water is pulled from the river. But at Paco, uh, no. Uh, it's just dam releases. Once you get a little further down river, like about a mile and a half down, now you start getting you know irrigation returns coming back in and people pulling water out. But you also have uh, about uh, five miles above the town of Montrose, the South Canal, which is um, water taken out of the Gunnison River through the Gunnison Tunnel and dumped into the Compagre to give water to the valley, essentially. So there's a ton of irrigation going on, but uh, it really doesn't affect the fishing 
at the okay. chill water section. Once you get lower, it starts to affect it a little bit just due to dirtier water with uh, returns coming off of the fields and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris in Oklahoma City uh, asks, um, he says, back before social distancing became a mandatory part of everyday life, I always practiced extreme social distancing on the water. Uh, is, is it possible to find solitude on the river, or are you always in sight of other anglers? Are there stretches of the river that, although the fishing is good, tend to be less crowded? Um, you bet. You bet. Like I said, you know, we're, we're a ways away from any major metropolitan area, you know, meaning, you know, Denver, Salt Lake. Uh, so it's there's never going to be a, a lot of super crowded, a lot of people. I'd say probably the week of the 4th of July is historically the busiest week on the river of the year uh, just because yeah. you have, you know, tourists and whatnot there. But this time of year, uh, let's see, I was down there a couple weeks ago, and I saw two other people in a mile-and-a-half stretch. So... You know, some days are more. Obviously, if you come during a weekend, typically, yeah, there's going to be more people, uh, but it's never going to be just crowded and packed. You can still get away, go around a corner and not see anyone. It's, you're going to be fine. So it's not really an issue. Yeah. Uh, Charlie in Minnesota wrote, he says, Hi, Matt, this is Charlie from near, your nearby hometown. I live in Maple Plain, Minnesota. You and I fished two years ago below the dam on the Unk. My wife and I fished there this spring and saw very few fish. Uh, that's, uh, he says, we spoke to other more experienced anglers who reported the same. Are the numbers, are you there? Yep. Oh, are the numbers way down on, on the unk? Uh, do you have a theory as to why? So a I lot guess. of that is due to, um, a lot of that is due to uh, them ceasing the stocking of the river. Uh, there's still plenty of fish down there. It's There's not as many fish. Uh, true, there isn't. However, the fish that are in there now, you know, they're wild fish, and there's still plenty of them. They're just not quite as dumb as these fish that are resident fish that are, grew up there. So, um, yes, to answer your question, yes, there is a fewer fish. You know why. It's not a big deal. They actually did a, a fry shocking survey this past November and found thousands of rainbow fry, which typically have gotten eaten by all these stocked fish. So we're really excited about what the future holds, say, in, like in another two, three, four years. The amazing population we're going to have of truly wild fish in the river is going to be mind-blowing, which I'm ecstatic yeah. about. Yeah, and fish that are born in the wild uh, know how to survive better in the wild, too, That's you know, I mean, I've been to lakes where the stock truck comes in, you know, and starts dumping, and these huge fish come out of the lake, and it's just having a feeding frenzy, you know, and the stock fish don't uh, yeah. know what to do, you know. I mean, they don't know exactly. about this. <laughs> they don't, That's got to be had... terrifying. Yeah, yeah. But, Very I mean, they've terrifying never... Experience. Yeah, they've never experienced a predator in the, in the fish, you know, hatchery, so... Um, yeah. You know, what do you expect? They're going to get eaten. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let's talk about equipment for a few minutes. Um, when we're talking about, uh, we got Lauren in British Columbia wrote in and said, "What length, line, and weight is the fly rod that you use on the river?" So, uh, you pack on some pretty big fish down there. What do you need to bring? So, 
answer your question, Lauren. Um, it depends on the time of year for me. Uh, during the, the summer months where we possibly have higher flows, um, and if you do hook a bigger fish, you're going to need a rod, you know, that can handle the uh, added current against the fish. There's a lot more pressure going on there. So I'm typically fishing in the summer either a nine and a half foot six weight sage X or a nine and a half foot seven weight X. The reason why I really like that nine and a half foot length, uh, you can it's so much better at mending, high sticking. Uh, than a nine-foot rod, you wouldn't think six inches really makes that big of a difference, but it, it really does. It truly does. And I uh, then in the uh, colder months, I'll downsize to a five-weight, potentially a six-weight, but still in that nine-and-a-half-foot length. When it comes to that, that's mainly for tippet protection because now we're fishing lighter tippet, 6X, 5X, a lot, uh, maybe even 7X, but hopefully not. The line that I'm fishing, um, I typically use a very long bellied line. Uh, the SA Trout Taper is has a 70-foot head on it, super delicate. Uh, you can throw drives with it, you, but for and it's not really designed for nymphing because it is such a long, delicate head. But your fly, your whole rig lands so much more softly with this line. It's still a weight-forward line, but it's I can't say enough good things about it for a technical tailwater nymphing line. It's it's unreal. You can mend it a mile. I love it. But so that's kind of my setup. Uh, just depends on the seasons. But I'd say overall, probably a nine and a half foot six weight will get you by year round, for sure. Okay. Yeah. And Tim K uh, was asking and from Oregon was asking about how light a tippet are you willing to go? Um, uh, same question might be said for rod weight, since I've stopped using my lighter rods and tippets when fishing larger fish to avoid playing them to death. Um, but you just said 6X, 7X tippet for these big fish? Yeah, <laughs> oh absolutely. Um, so the, the, the thing that always uh, drives me nuts about um, so many people, so many fly fishermen and women, uh, somebody might go out and spend $400 on a reel and then decide to strip that fish in and not really use the reel for the drag system that they bought it for. Uh, drives me absolutely crazy. I'm a firm believer in get every fish, I don't care how big it is, on the reel and let the reel do its job. So adjusting your drag and setting your drag so that, and playing around with it maybe even at home, I do all the time. Uh, knowing how hard you can pull and where your drag needs to be set. If, say if you are using 6X, you can pull amazingly hard on 6X. I can drag a 10-pound weight around uh, on a sheet of cardboard on the carpet with 6X if my drag's set properly and you know how to apply pressure properly. That's the biggest thing. So 6X throughout the winter is a staple, even on fish well over 10 pounds. It's I'm not scared of it. 7x, that's eh, you're starting to really get kind of start to get scary there. But 5, 6x, no problem. And whenever you think about setting your drag, always set your drag lighter than you think it needs to be. If you set your drag too hard and on that first run, you're not going to stop that fish. So there's no point on trying. 
But if your drag is set too hard, pink, you're going to snap that fish off. If you have your drag set a little lighter, you can always increase the drag tension and go from there. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, testing things at home. Um, I interviewed Andy Mill, and Andy Mill is, you know, super well known for his tarpon fishing. But that's what he would do. He'd go on his uh, back porch and hook up a uh, bucket with, you know, weights in it, and then hook his line to that uh, so he could feel how much pressure he could put on a fish. And, you know, with the, the, the terminal tackle that he was using. Same kind of thing that you were just talking about. I've never heard of anybody <laughs> for trout talking that way, but uh, well, the same principle. You've got to know where idea. you're at, right? Pardon? Exactly. I actually, I actually got that idea from him. Oh, did you? Okay, good. <laughs> I did. So I can't, I, I won't take credit for it. I'll give him total credit. But, um, yeah, I mean, and that's um, fighting a fish. I fight big trout and have people fight big trout just like you would fight a tarpon. Uh, mm -hmm. No high rod, uh, because then you're only using the top couple feet of the rod. Uh, low rod angles, uh, so that you're pulling with the butt section of the rod. The tip section still has all the integrity, so if that fish makes big head shakes, the tip can still bend and flex. Nothing is maxed out. And uh, your rod's more straighter to the fish, the straighter angle, so that, that engages your drag system a lot smoother. So mm -hmm. it's pretty much like fighting a tarpon, except trout. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you can land fish incredibly fast, even on light tippets. Hmm. That's good to know. I mean, that's something I'm going to have to try out. Um, and I think that's a, you know, the tip of the night here <laughs> as far as knowing your equipment and what it's capable of. I think it's super important. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take another quick break here, and then um, we'll come back, talk about food and flies and strategies and tactics. So uh, lots to cover yet tonight. So stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They're best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They've been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, it's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Matt McCannell about the tailwaters of the Uncompadre River. And if you'd like to ask Matt a question, just fill out that form on our homepage, send us a question, and we'll try to get it answered tonight. Um, okay, Matt, um, food and flies. Um, uh, we did have, let me, let me check my questions here um, coming in. Um, so uh, Phil in Kentucky wrote in, and he said, um, you know, what does a 20-pound brown eat? And uh, his answer is anything it wants. <laughs> He'd like to know more about what these big browns want. And, you know, are, are, they, are they going for streamers, midges? Where are we at in the food, food chain here? 
So, uh, yeah, they do and can eat whatever they want. Uh, again, you know, I found these dead fish that have literally choked to death on, you know, an 18-inch fish. So, with that said, though, a lot of uh, things that people read, um, that you see, internet magazines, people tend to show up to this river because, oh, there's big browns, okay, well, I need to throw giant streamers. These fish will absolutely freak out and head the other direction if you toss a big streamer at them. They do not appreciate it at all, and they, quite frankly, they won't eat them. I've tried every type of streamer fishing you could tactic fly you could think of. They're terrified of them. Why is um, so? Yeah. I have no clue. I cannot figure it out. Um, it doesn't make any sense. All I know is I think it's because I think it's too big, it's too flashy maybe, even if it's not flashy, it's it's not swimming right, it's not acting right. I have no idea, but they will freak out and disappear for up to a couple weeks. Um, a couple if, weeks? If, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy. So that's why I fish a lot of really small, really very subtle patterns, whether maybe it's my Hellraiser leech pattern, which was developed down there, uh, which is a very small uh, size 12 leech pattern. Um, but it's not intrusive. It's not scary. And typically, fish don't, aren't going to spook from that. But typically, small flies, midges, small uh, betas patterns, if the fish has to just open and close their mouth, they're going to eat it. A big fish isn't going to pass up a f any food as long as it can just sit there and open and close its mouth. Uh, that's been really the key to success, and that's where, like, especially, you know, I, I fish with a ladder to spot fish, and I need to get that client's drift in that exact spot, in that exact lane that that fish is in, in order to hook that fish or get it, even have an opportunity for that fish to eat the fly. It's not going to move six inches, uh, let alone a foot. It really just, they really just want to open and close their mouth. Um, so that's the key to success. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it, 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 I find it interesting because, gosh, this is—I think this might be my 311th show that I've done. You know, interview on Ask About Fly Fishing. But every time we go to a, a fishery, there's something different. I mean, there's still brown trout, there's still rainbow trout, but they can act so totally different in and just even across the state of Colorado. You know. Um, just go from one tail water to another, and and it's like you're fishing for a totally different species, you know. So oh, um, absolutely. I, yeah, I find absolutely. that the, I mean, the, the you, streamer thing uh, just amazing, you know. It really is. It's it's mind blowing, but that's why I I don't even pack uh, even decent sized streamers. Small leeches, yes, but um, no, I nothing yeah, bigger, which goes against goes against conventional wisdom when it comes to, you yeah. know, especially big brown trout. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's wild. Yeah, you think of them as, uh, you know, a big predator, you know. Um, can you give us, uh, Rick in Medusa, New York, asked uh, if you could give us a quick tour of the seasonal hatches that you have there, and if there's a, a favorite hatch, tell us why. Uh, seasonal hatches, pretty much 
just like any tailwater out west here, let's say if we start in the spring, you know, with midges of BWOs uh, rolling into caddis. Um, so we do get some little stoneflies on the river. And then further down on the river, there's actually a really great uh, salmon fly hatch. However, most of that's through all private property, and typically the river's really big and blown out. But so you can't really take advantage of it. But, um, you know, the caddis are going to be about another two weeks out on the uh, tailwater section. And then that's going to really roll into, you know, the terrestrial season, hoppers. And then, but my favorite hatch when it comes to dry fly fishing especially is going to be the uh, PMD hatch, which typically starts in mid, uh, about the beginning of August and it'll actually roll all the way through, maybe even on some years, into the first week of October. The bugs do get smaller as the hatch progresses. The later on it gets, the bugs get, you know, start out as 16s and finish like about 22s um, beginning of October. But uh, that's one of my favorite hatches, especially when it comes to throwing dry flies. It's, it's fantastic. And then, of course, you know, BWOs again in the fall, midges throughout the winter. Um, typical Western stuff, but the the PMD hatch is truly spectacular to see there. And the nice thing about it is, and actually one that I missed, the Uncapagre has one of the best green drake hatches in the state of Colorado that most people have never heard about. Our green drakes, as opposed to a lot of rivers in the state, actually hatch in the morning. Typically the peak is around 11 o'clock, start about at 9 o'clock, and that coincides right with the PMDs, which start hatching at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So you can literally go down there and throw dries all day. Green drakes in the morning, PMDs in the afternoon and evening. It's a spectacular time of year. Mm. Now, and these big lugs come up from the deep to get these? I wish. Um, <laughs> no, they do okay, not. No, okay. They, they do not, uh, but... Uh, no, just the the rest of the fish in the river absolutely go crazy for them. Uh, however, the big fish will be chowing on green drake nymphs and PMD nymphs throughout the day. Okay. But uh, dry fly action for the big boys, uh, definitely not. Okay. Um, Martin Coleman in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, he writes, uh, what are your top three flies and top three beers for fishing the young? <laughs> That's the first time I've got top three beers. I always get top three flies, but not top three beers. That's good. Any local like favorites? Um, <laughs> so as far as flies go, uh, let's see, I've got several patterns, obviously, with, uh, with Umqua Feather Merchants uh, that are produced by them. I would say, and those flies were all really designed on uh, the the Uncompahgre River, uh, the Paco mm -hmm. section. Uh, so I'd probably say uh, my number one is my fly that's called the Neon Nightmare. It's a midge pattern, comes in two different colors. Uh, pretty wild uh, color scheme on that fly. Second one would uh, my second top producer would have to be the Hellraiser Leech, uh, another one of my patterns, and then uh, the third one would probably be new fly that I had come out last year. It's called the Demon Mitch, uh, red fly. Uh, you can check these out most fly shops, just about everywhere. Uh, my website, Umquad's website, what have you. But uh, 
those are going to be my threes. As far as beer goes, man, I'm not, I don't get too fancy. I'm really pretty basic person. Stella, PBR, uh, let's say Coors, I know. You're gonna, you guys are going to beat me up on that. But, um, but yeah, I We can edit fancy. that out. We, we can edit that out, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get fancy when it comes to beers. I, just okay. don't, I don't know why. That's fine. <laughs> Great question, though. Yeah, yeah. I've never – I should – Martin, thanks for that. Maybe we should ask that question more often <laughs> and see what people are drinking <laughs> out there. Um, or we can switch to, you know, what's your favorite scotch or something like that. But uh, anyway, yeah, all, all fun. Um, Matt Fugazi in, uh, uh, in Colorado again, he said, uh, Matt, I fish the Yunk inside uh, Paco Park about two, three times a year, as my folks live about 30 minutes from there in Cornerstone. Can you tell us more about your Neon Nightmare, which you just mentioned, Midge Emerger, and I've seen the, the beastly browns in there and was wondering if you developed this fly to target them or was it for another reason? Um, so the Neon Nightmare, Midge Larva pattern, oh boy, that was, that was my first fly that I actually got into the Umqua catalog. I guess, boy, how many years ago now? Probably six years ago. The Neon, obviously it has uh, the Neon Nightmare is neon is in the name, so the the color scheme is fluorescent pink, and then the other color is fluorescent orange. Um, yes, that fly was designed for that on that river. Turns out it works everywhere, which I knew. But uh, it's it is a fly. I don't want to say that was designed for those big fish, but those big fish love it. It's bright enough, it grabs their attention, but yet it's small, and it's not scary. Whereas maybe a, a larger fly is going to be, is going to spook these fish because it's, they don't see a ton of big uh, bugs floating in that river system. So this fly grabs their attention, but yet is so small, uh, you know, commercially it's tied, uh, what, 22 through 18. So small pattern but it's not scary even though it's super bright fly. Uh, it's, it accounts for more of these uh, giant fish than any other fly down there for me uh, and yeah. still does to this day. So I, I can't say enough great stuff about it. Yeah, um, Larry Eden uh, follows up with this. Um, he's, Larry's from uh, New Mexico. He says, uh, I live tying and fishing many of your patterns. Uh, were they developed on the, the Uncompagre? So um, is that where most of your patterns that are with Umqua were developed? Pretty pretty much all of them, uh, maybe exception of the uh, Hellraiser Crawdad, which is a lot like my leech, uh, just a Crawdad variation of it. Um, that really was designed, I designed, for uh, fishing under a hopper on the Gunnison River and making horribly bad mends so that that uh, Crawdad would have more of a jigging motion when you make these really bad mends and moving the hopper really aggressively. And you'll just get very violent strikes. Uh, it's a super effective way. I love fishing that fly in that manner. But uh, the, outside of that one, uh, pretty much all of my flies, including uh, I just had a new one come out. It's called the Massacre Midge. Uh, it's a great fly for uh, it's an emerger foam. Um, 
wing emerger designed for midges and it's also great for BWOs and the 18 sizes actually works great as a caddis emerger. But yeah, all of them pretty much designed right at Paco. It's always always uh, always fun to uh, tell people that like, hey, you know, that fly was that was made right here, um, <laughs> even though maybe they didn't know that or you know. But uh, yeah, it's always it's always really neat to see your flies getting fished and people having success on your flies where yep. you actually came up with it. So that sounds like Larry yeah. is so uh, good for him. Uh, what are some of the other uh, patterns that you've uh, that you've uh, designed? So um, again, the Hellraiser Leech, the Hellraiser Crawdad, uh, the Neon Nightmare, the Demon Midge, and then now the new Massacre Midge. Okay. Um, I also have the Mighty Midge, the the only fly, and it was just recently brought to my attention that doesn't have some dark, sinister name. Uh, <laughs> somebody asked me the other day, like, why are all your flies kind of named scary? I'm like, I don't know. I've never thought about it. It's just always worked out that way. But subconscious um, yeah. on your dreams. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. I guess people are like, boy, you must have messed up dreams, huh? I, yeah. I don't think so, but. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, I actually had a dream the other night that was a really pleasant dream, <laughs> and I woke up and I go, "Son of a gun!" You know, it wasn't one of these dreams that you know, you're like you're lost in a maze, you can't find your way out, or you know, all these. Right. these you know, some of these dreams, you know, you, you end up waking up and you're tired because the dream was really exhausting. <laughs> you know, but this is a really nice one. I couldn't figure it out. I, I must have karma. Must have had a good week that week or something. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, good. Yeah. Fun, funny. Um, are you using any kind of classic patterns uh, that work well on the on the Paco there? You know, boy, I'm trying to think. I'm always changing. I'm always trying to do new things, come up with new stuff. So I wouldn't say I do a lot. Um, you know, I know people have success throwing, you know, it's very basic generic pheasant tails. Uh, especially certain times of year, um, you know, maybe during the PMD hatches and whatnot. But I don't tend to fish many classic patterns, uh, just because I'm a little bit more partial to my stuff, and and just a lot of that. I mean, we're really in the golden age of fly tying. I mean, with the yeah. materials that we have these days, synthetics. It's just, I mean. It's amazing what people are doing out there with fly tying these days, and yeah. so oh, yeah. I just, I just haven't fished uh, a lot of those uh, old patterns on that stretch on the um, Paco stretch of the Unk in a long time. To answer yeah. the question, yeah, yeah, you had mentioned. I was kind of curious. Maybe you wouldn't term them classics, but I think they're becoming classics. Some of them. Uh, we were talking about, you know, Pat Dorsey before the show and you know he's got so many of those those midge patterns that uh, I think have kind of been become classics you know uh, well I see uh, I don't know if I you know a lot of Pat stuff I mean you know still very innovative and even though yeah. he might have come up with it 20 years ago I mean like the black beauty I mean that thing yeah. as simple as it is that thing just works you know his top secret midge um, yeah uh, revolutionary um, color scheme on it, a little bit of flash. I mean, it's, yeah. So I wouldn't, 
classify, in my opinion, stuff like that as, as you know, more traditional or classic stuff. I'm always thinking of like maybe a Harrisier or a Hornberg. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, old yeah. old school stuff. Old, old uh, stuff. That's yeah. what, right. I mean, I've been doing this. You know, I've been fly fishing since the late '80s. Um, you know, I remember when the first bead-headed nymphs came out. Uh, that was mm-hmm. life-changing. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I consider more classic. So to answer your question yeah. that I've kind of explained, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, let me take another quick break here, and then we'll come back, talk about uh, a bit uh, more uh, about uh, – I'll tell you what, let me, let me finish these two off, and then we'll come back and just talk strategies. Um, Tim K. in Oregon says, when you're targeting large trout with the smallest hook size, you have confidence in landing that fish once you hook it. Ooh, uh, good question. Um, confidence, I'd say a 26, which is a very small hook. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, very small hook, but again, applying pressure right, the right drag setting, and obviously a solid knot. Um, and when you are tying, uh, do go that small. Uh, if you don't know the knot, check it out. Davy knot. Everybody yeah. needs to learn how to tie that knot. Super fast, super easy. But that's uh, you're going to need to use that knot when you're using flies that small. But yeah, I'll have confidence down to a 26. Obviously, I'm going to want to use the biggest hook I can. Uh, for a given situation, but sometimes, especially you know, middle of the winter, I'm I may be fishing changing flies, but I'm not necessarily changing the pattern. I'm changing the hook size, and mm-hmm. I just keep going smaller and smaller with the fly till eventually the fish eat. Um, but yeah, and you 26, get down to 26. With yep. Quite often. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Uh, if I can avoid it, no. But uh, sometimes that's that's what it takes. And uh, but yeah, any smaller than that, no, not going to have confidence. Uh, even though they might eat the fly, confidence in landing the fish, mm, especially yeah. a really big fish, no. Yeah, yeah, it still amazes me that a, a big trout like that would take a you know size twenty six. Like, why bother? <laughs> I guess right. Then you eat a thousand a day, you know, then it starts to add up, you know. So. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's yeah. really what it boils down to. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back up and talk more about your strategies and tactics that you use to, to, to get into Sounds these big, big fish. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Uh, FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all types of fish and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Matt McCannell, 
about the tailwaters of the I guess the Unk River. How's that? <laughs> I did pretty good all night, except for the, for this time around. But um, getting tired, I guess. You did. Um, so anyway, if you uh, if you ask uh, if you need to ask a question, jump in there and fill that form out on our homepage, and we'll we'll try to get it addressed. Uh, let's see what's come in here, Matt. Um, oh, Treg Owings in Moscow, Idaho asks, uh, has the trout spay taken on on this river, and is that something that's even applicable on on the uh, Baco section? You know, not uh, – it hasn't. The river's just too small. There's no yeah. real need to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can roll cast across the whole river just fine with a single-hand rub. Um, so the need for a two-hander, no. I'd say on the Gunnison River, I will fish uh, a trout spay. Uh, for sure, because that's a much larger river, but uh, on, on the Yonk, no. It's just too tight, too small. Um, I mean, you're really, you know, the widest part of the river, you know, you may be looking at 50 feet. So it's just not not applicable. Um, Phil, Phil in uh, California, Kentucky wrote in, and he's asking about needing, do you really need a 30-foot leader to fish for these fish? Uh, is that true? I mean, do you need a 30-foot leader, or is he getting... You know, I don't... I know a few years ago I did talk about using 30-foot leaders. I think about the longest leader I'm fishing these days. I've refined down to, say, about 24, 25 feet, which sounds pretty crazy. So these fish, especially the big ones, um, if they see fly line, it's over. Now, they may not freak out and completely spook and just lose their mind, but they're going to drift off and just go to their happy place under a rock, into a log, and be gone for the rest of the day or even a couple days. Uh, so that's where these longer leaders really come into play because that way the fish isn't seeing that fly line. These big, smart fish, they see a lot of fly lines, and they know what that is. Uh, so that's... So I would say yes, but not quite that long. Uh, right now, I can get away with fishing. I'm having most people fish about a 15-foot leader. It's a good balance to where somebody can make a mistake and maybe cast a little too long, a little too short, but yet still not spook the fish. They'll mend it. You can still cast it very easily. And yeah, so, but yeah, definitely the longer, the better. Uh, Dan Espinoza in Pueblo asks, um, is urinifing effective on this tailwater? Well, great question. I've had a lot of people try. Our very competent uro-nymphers, tight-line nymphers, um, and the biggest problem has been, and it hasn't worked, because it's mainly been how, uh, with that with maybe a potential like heavier anchor fly and then smaller flies dropped off, it just hasn't worked out. Even despite me not wanting them to try, that hey, it's their day. You know, you want to give it a shot, go for it. But uh, no, I have, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. I haven't seen it work. Uh, that's that's why it just my what I do works. It's been proven. Not saying it's the be-all and end-all by any means, but 
I have a lot, I don't have much confidence from what I've seen, even though I am not one of those uh, Euro people myself. Um, I don't really do it, have done it, but by no means am I super confident mm -hmm. in my ability. Well, tell us, so, um, no. Yeah, we had a, Andy Cordova, I was asking basically the same question, but he also uh, tied in there, you know, do you fish with weighted flies or do you like to use split shot for your weight? So tell us about that, you know, that you know your your terminal tackle there, and, and how you do fish to these big fish. What's your what's your setup? So a leader setup's pretty wild. Um, so I don't fish if I'm nymphing, which you pretty much always are to these things, uh, the big big ones. I don't use tapered leaders. First off, if in my opinion, if you're using tapered leader to nymph fish with, you're doing it wrong. Three quarters of that tapered leader is super thick, completely inefficient at sinking. My leader design that I've come up with over the years is 40-pound mono butt section. Ranges in length from, say, 6 feet to 12 feet. From there, I have a perfection loop with a Rainey's tail strike indicator attached onto that perfection loop, which is free-moving. On that same perfection loop, I have a swivel. From there, so now all that is floating on the surface. But now from there, drop below, attached to the swivel is a bimini twist made out of 5X fluorocarbon. And then off of that bimini, there's about five feet of tippet. And then from there, I'll finish however I do my fly setups. Uh, typically, if I'm fishing small flies, none of my flies, except for the Hellraiser series, has weight. I don't believe in midges or smaller flies to have weight. They just don't float right in the drift. They're not acting like a real fly should. Um, you know, if I'm fishing on the Gunnison River, that's a different story. But here uh, at Paco, no, I don't like my flies to have weight. So either I will use split shot, but sometimes on certain fish that I have that are super, super spooky, they will spook from split shot. So I will have to use a small fly with weight, uh, with like a tungsten bead or something so that those fish won't spook. Uh, so it's just dependent on the situation. But yeah, typically split shot, you bet. Okay, okay. And uh, okay, so you said you had your butt section, went down to a perfection loop, I think you said. Um, and then to that you had a swivel. And tied to yep, that a so, bimini twist. Yep, a bimini What's twist. What's the bimini twist you? for? So the bimini is actually a saltwater knot, really designed for right. tarpon fishing. Uh, the bimini is a, a dynamic knot. It's not a static knot, like, say, an improved clinch knot. Tied in improved clinch knot, the knot's just there. Bimini moves. It's like, uh, imagine it as a uh, small shock absorber or a spring. So and now you have maybe a 10, 12, 15-pound fish throwing massive head shakes out and a light tippet in a small hook, now that little shock absorber, that little bimini is going to possibly save your rear end from popping the fly out, snapping the tippet, something going wrong. That's why I incorporate it into my system. And now what you also have is if you're just thinking 5X, you have a super efficient system to deliver your flies. Um, Instead of, say, casting 10 feet above a fish, now you can cast 4 feet above the fish and have your fly sink 
and have uh, less uh, deflection with the current to pull your flies off a target when maybe your target is two to three inches across. And did you say you were using a strike indicator there at that perfection loop? Yep, I am. Strike indicator that I use uh, primarily is uh, called a, a Rainey's Tell Strike. Um, made Tell by. Us about uh, that. Is uh, so it's a yarn indicator, but uh, with a little uh, post. It's actually a product that Dave Whitlock came up with years ago. But the great thing about the, this indicator is it's got a small metal loop on the bottom of it. And so that is where that allows me to thread that onto my perfection loop to have it move independently. And it's very soft, very supple material. Again, it's, it's yarn indicator. And uh, it, it lands super soft and detects even the slightest little nudge. So that's why I really oh, like it. However. So it's, it's like sliding in the perfection loop in yep, there? It's uh, everything, okay. everything independently moving. It's, I know this system is really hard to uh, describe without seeing a diagram or something of it. But, uh, um, and then, but my indicator is really there just as a suspension device to get my flies right into the strike zone because I am either I'm seeing most of the time when I'm, especially when I'm guiding, I'm watching the fish eat. And the indicator is amazing, uh, never moves. It mm. is amazing. Even on huge fish, fish will come up, set the fly, I'll say set, boom. And everybody is always like, well, the indicator never moved. I would have never set the hook. Is, yeah. I know. It's amazing no. we catch anything nymphing. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's really... Almost by accident, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, it's, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so when I'm actually working or when I'm fishing, uh, it's really not there to necessarily detect strikes because I'm actually seeing the fish open its mouth and eat the fly. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Um, we need to find these fish. How do you go about finding these fish? Oh, well, I can tell you the first one that we ever found was a total accident. Um, that was about, oh boy, nine years ago now. So, But since then, my game has evolved a little bit. Uh, so some people might know or read articles or whatever, what have you, seen a video, but uh, I carry an eight-foot stepladder around the river with me, which sounds really crazy. Uh, some people even give me a hard time for it, but whatever. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't <laughs> bother me any. Um, but uh, and I use this uh, as a tool to, okay, locate the fish and also uh, guide clients into, you know, getting the perfect drift and then ultimately watching the fish eat. Um, I don't care if it's, I still do sight fishing trips if it's snowing, raining, uh, super cloudy, you name it. I might be 12 feet up in the air. I can still cut through the glare in these low light conditions and still spot the fish because if you can't see these fish, you're not going to catch them. Now, I shouldn't say that, you know, I mean, very, you know, the off chance, you know, somebody might get lucky, but, um, and then also, I've learned over the years that these fish hold in exactly the same spots, even though maybe within a, a run, there might be two good spots that 
big fish always will be sitting in, even though it might be a different fish someday. That same fish, that same spot is always occupied. So instead of having to look over the whole river like I used to have to do, I can set up in a certain spot and look into a run and quickly scan over it and check two or three spots within a given run and be like, okay, nope, nobody's home. That's fine. Let's move on. Go to the next spot. Know exactly where to look. Bingo. There's one. So part of your success is just uh, you know it's your neighborhood. <laughs> you know where everybody lives, <laughs> right? Exactly. But over the years, uh, yeah. Yes. Exactly. You know, fish come, fish go, but typically, like the big browns, they're very. They live in about a 20-foot area their entire life, from what mm -hmm. I've noticed. And so they know every little detail about that spot. The rainbows are a little bit more migratory. They'll move up and down the rivers. I might see a one fish a quarter mile down river where I saw it the day before, and then the next day he's right back up there. So they they move a little bit more, but browns really stay where they are. Um, yeah, it's also just knowing the stretch of water so really, it's really, a, really well. It sounds like a team effort, Matt, to, to get into these big fish. Do you think it would be uh, very hard, I should say, for somebody to just try to do it on their own, even if they were accomplished fly fisher, uh, just because of the, the the process of trying to spot them and uh, to target them? Spotting them may not be the issue for maybe some people, um, but I tell you what, if you're by yourself and anybody who's tried to land a really big fish by themselves, that's a whole other can of worms. And so okay. having, you know, somebody there to help out with that aspect of it is going to go a long way. Not saying it's not impossible to do by yourself. Um, I've done it a bunch. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely easier when you have, um, uh, you have a higher success rate, I'm positive, if you have a friend there, somebody there to help you out, especially the landing the fish. Describe how, um, okay, so let's say you're taking your client down to the river. You've set up. Uh, you might have pulled your ladder out. You spot the fish. How do you talk your client to that fish? Oh, boy. Um, Great question. So I either carry a small whiteboard uh, with in my backpack or pull out uh, a pad of paper and a pen and draw out a somewhat detailed uh, diagram of like maybe there's a, a tan or a white rock two feet above the fish or maybe two feet to the left of the fish. And so now we have a point even if maybe they can't see the fish super well, they can see that object in the water. Or maybe it's a weed bed, you know, the backside of a weed bed or a log. Uh, some identifier to where now they have a target. So even if they are somewhat downriver of the fish and can't see the fish when they're actually casting and they can see that specific little identifier, that marker there, that's really going to help out because, again, it's all about really accuracy. Um, when I'm having somebody cast even, you know, one of these giants, uh, a 20-foot cast is going to be a fairly long shot because uh, we've, we've worked in a position. Now it maybe has taken a half hour to get in a position close enough to the fish, and we're going to sit down just talk about every scenario that could possibly happen. 
fish runs upriver, the fish runs downriver, what are we going to do? We literally have to have a plan for everything. And that, uh, as opposed to just like, oh, there's the fish, and running out and making casts and having no plan, that's often a recipe for disaster. So having a plan is the big thing. Uh, and then just really talking about it. And my rule is always I don't have anyone cast to a fish unless they can see the fish. That's it's so huge. Same thing like in the saltwater world. Your success rate is going to go through the roof if you can see your target as opposed to the guide saying 2 o'clock, 40 feet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you might get lucky, you bet, but no, if you have a really good idea of what your target is, now your percentages are really going to go up. Yeah. What? Uh, how many shots would a average client get during the day? For a oh, on big fish? Um, it totally depends. I mean, I've had uh, fish with people for, you know, four days and maybe have gotten maybe they've screwed up, maybe the fish has just decided not to cooperate. Who knows? Uh, and then again, you're also dealing with with fish, you know. I wish I could control them a little better, but, you know, fishing's fishing. So, boy, I've had days where, or even a week, where let's say an average day right now, uh, you know, on average, you're going to, you might, we might cast to a fish for two, three hours, maybe even longer. Uh, you know, from when we spot it to the time maybe the fish is in the net. Maybe maybe that's a five-hour process. Really? But, wow. Um, yeah. Oh, you bet. Um, yeah. If the fish is, you know, truly worth it and somebody has the patience for that because that's really what it boils down to. Somebody's impatient. Ooh, that's a t always a tough one. But somebody that's truly just committed to the whole process, you're going to have a lot better success. Um, so, you know, maybe you're going to get, see, five, six different fish in a day and get uh, a few shots at all of those. Some days maybe you're not going to, you know, you're going to see one. and But maybe that one fish you might fish to. Uh, uh, I had a gentleman last year about this time. We can literally cast to one fish for six hours. And he maybe only made, though, about 50 casts in six hours because we had to make sure the fish was calm and also make sure that my client was calm because the fish was that big. But wow. Uh, wow. so it's just situational-based. Uh, definitely yeah. not a numbers game. Um, yeah. I never guarantee anyone anything but uh, yeah. except for the <laughs> opportunity. But, uh, yeah, super intense. It is truly a lot more like hunting uh, than uh, fishing for sure. So, uh, last question: What? Uh, how would you describe uh, the type of fly fisher that would be most satisfied when when fishing uh, the, the Uncompahgre uh, Paco section? So, most satisfied is going to be the angler that isn't in it for you know big numbers of fish. That's really in it for the experience and the pursuit of maybe that one big fish. That's going to be, that's going to, who's really going to appreciate uh, that section of river, uh, Paco. And I, and I suppose one that appreciates the process, as you've described it. Exactly. Um, it's, even if you don't I've been told it, by, yeah, the journey exactly. was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have clients that have never landed one that I've even, uh, you know, one guy jumps to my mind, uh, I think, six years 
We've been fishing together in multiple days, 15, 20 days a year. He's never landed one. He's hooked them. But it, it still comes back because he says it's the most intense thing, closest to cast into a permit that he's ever done. Yeah, sounds very similar. <laughs> Frustrating. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, great, great. Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up here. Um, we've run out of time. I think we could talk for another couple hours, but uh, we've got to end it somewhere. Uh, but um, uh, stick with me here, Matt, uh, and uh, we're going to do some uh, giveaways and stuff. I want to involve you. Uh, we are going you to um, uh, to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and then we'll give away a, uh, a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. So uh, stick with me here for uh, just a couple more minutes. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest friends of wild salmon in the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to this region, and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org. That's SaveBristolBay.org. And that's where you can learn more about how you can get involved and, and save this fishery. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away uh, our prizes. Um, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, uh, it's too late now, but make sure you do for our next show. And then you'll have a chance to win uh, some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll uh, contact you after the show and provide you with the information on how to receive your prize. So first thing we're going to do is give away a membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, as you heard earlier, great organization to support and be part of. Uh, so even if you don't win tonight, go check them out and uh, join up. So our, let me fire up our database here and do our selection. It looks like Greg Williams uh, in Colorado. Greg Williams. Uh, you're the winner of uh, your membership to the Fly Fishers International, so congratulations, Greg. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. Um, now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Uh, and you can learn more about uh, all the periodicals and books that they have at amatobooks.com. Again, amatobooks.com. Thanks for, to them for offering up this subscription. And our winner for that is Sid Newton. Sid Newton in Indiana. So congratulations, Sid. Uh, glad you're uh, winning that. And uh, thanks for listening tonight. And now um, we're going to give away a book, courtesy of Stackpole Books, stackpolebooks.com. Check them out. They've got tons of books there. And I have a list here of um, a bunch of titles. And if you're the winner tonight, I'll send you that list. And you can pick one of the titles off that list. So. Uh, let me uh, clear my queue here, and still got some questions coming in here, Matt. So <laughs> uh, we could have gone on, but um, anyway, let's uh, let's do this. Um, tell me what Matt uh, said the uh, the best time of year to to fish the taco tailwater section there is. What's the best times of year? Um, and uh, and tell me 
that, and they'll get you a book in your hands. So, so Matt, to take some, there's a slight delay before they even hear the, the question, and then they got to type. So, uh, we have to entertain them uh, while they're 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 looking. One question that came in um, just while I was doing clearing my queue here on questions was, are the yeah. rainbows um, as wary as the browns? Good question. Who? Good question. Um, I would say not quite as wary. They they definitely will give you a little bit more wiggle room uh, as opposed to the browns for for some reason. Uh, that's been my experience. Uh, but then again, every fish is different. Um, I had a fish about a month ago that if I got within 50 feet of the thing, and I don't know how it would do it, but I couldn't get anyone into a certain position to even attempt the cast, either downriver or upriver, uh, the fish just knew. So then again, uh, he had a buddy with him that was an absolute, just not a smart fish. And he, you could almost get within 20 feet of him, and he, he was very, very cooperative. But so I think it's just I think it's just the personality of the fish. But I would say yes. Overall, rainbows aren't quite as wary as the big browns. And uh, do you fish for them the same way? I do. Yep. Okay. Okay. Same same tactics. Same everything. You bet. Okay. Looks like our first person that uh, came in uh, is is a winner. Let me uh, check with you. He says, uh, um, "Oh no, I lost him." September to May. Is that correct? Yep. That would be correct. That would okay, be correct. that's uh, Treg Owings. I uh, haven't heard from you in a while, Treg. Uh, congratulations. So uh, I will send you, I've got your email address here, Treg. I'll send you over a list of books, and uh, you can have your choice. So congratulations. Thanks for paying attention, and thanks for nice. checking in with us again. So, And uh, Matt, uh, just uh, wanted to thank you for taking your time out and uh, Appreciate you being with us and sharing all your knowledge. And uh, sounds like an exciting fishery. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. You bet. I appreciate uh, the opportunity and the invite to come on. Uh, thanks. Uh, had an enjoyable time. Yeah, great, great. Well, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll chat again. And uh, good luck this season. And uh, hopefully we'll do some fishing <laughs> before the season ends. So, And, that, and they <laughs> exactly. may start getting hot in uh, September for you. So it uh, might, might be work out real well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I appreciate it, sir. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully you have all found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line of the menu. It says Podcast Archives. In that archive you'll find all of our past shows over 300, which you can search by keyword or keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, brown, rainbows, Madison River, uh, Uncompagre River, uh, so forth. So go ahead and explore, and you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find. Lots of great guests on the show, lots to learn from them. So uh, our next broadcast will be April 22nd, and it's going to be 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'm going to interview Paul McCain, and our topic for the show will be Long Island's fly fishing treasures. So Paul guides out of his shop, River Bay Outfitters, on Long Island, and he fishes many types of water, both fresh and salt, and for many species of fish. Long Island has so much to offer, it's difficult to know where to begin. Paul will guide us to some of the well-known and not-so-well-known places on Long Island and open your eyes to all that's possible. So join us and explore Long Island fly fishing. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, 
uh, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.